So, good evening, everyone. It's so nice to be with you. I was sitting in here at the 615 sitting. It was so quiet, so beautiful. I love retreat. It's really a special uh, opportunity. We say that again and again, uh, but it really is. And I always say that retreat centers are like cosmic hospitals. You know, we come here to get well. You know, I know I used to come here and I would sort of arrive sort of like in an ambulance, an inner 911, you know, with a, what do you, you have a tube and, you know, and you get better over the course of the time. I sat many three-month courses. It was a just sort of rejuvenation of the silence and the presence and the Dharma would heal me. So the Dharma in some ways is this great medicine. And then the teachers were like the nurses, really, you know. We, everybody has a little prescription, you know, more walking, less walking. Okay, eight precepts, no, no, eat two meals, you know, ten meals, whatever. You know, we're each doing little things to try to help. Basically, we're trying to help your mind stay as balanced as possible, help you stay as balanced as possible, so that the truth of the Dharma can go in. You know, the truth of things. So tonight I really uh, wanted to talk more about the body and awakening in the body. And so I'm going to offer some different perspectives on what we mean by uh, mindfulness of the body or embodiment or freedom in the body. Uh, So I offer some of these thoughts and reflections, but I want to encourage you to just take what is What's good for you? You don't, you know, all the Dharma talks, we just offer, you know, it's kind of a buffet, yeah? So you just take this or that, and if there's something that doesn't work for you, you can leave it. You know, it's just what we just offer. So it's in that spirit that I want to offer this talk, because for some people it could be very helpful if I offer different perspectives, or maybe a perspective that you haven't heard so much. So I just want to start off with this quote by Eduardo Galliano. He says, the church says the body is a sin. Science says the body is a machine. Advertising says the body is a business. The body says I am a fiesta. anyone having a fiesta today or sometimes it can be more difficult you know (laughs) so that's what Eduardo says the body is a business the body says I'm a fiesta so what does Buddha say Buddha says in this beautiful quote I'll read you a couple bhikkhus this word bhikkhus again when one dhamma is developed and cultivated it leads to a great sense of urgency to great benefit, to great safety from bondage, to great mindfulness and full awareness, to obtainment of knowledge and insight, to a pleasant abiding here and now, to realization of the fruit and true knowledge of deliverance. What is that one Dhamma? It is mindfulness occupied with the body. 
So it's an interesting translation, occupy the body. You know, it reminds me of Occupy Movement, you know, in Oakland. It's quite active there, right near our meditation center. So it's like, how do we occupy the body? It's very interesting. Another quote that I, I love a lot. In this fathom-long body, with its perceptions and thoughts, there is the world, the origin of the world, the ending of the world, and the path leading to the ending of the world. And one more quote that I think is, is pointing, another pointing, just as anyone who extends his mind over the great ocean has included whatever streams there are that flow into the ocean, so too, when anyone has developed and repeatedly practiced mindfulness of the body, he has included whatever wholesome dharma there are that partake of true knowledge. So that's pretty clear in some way. But, but I would hear a lot about mindfulness of the body. A lot. We do. This is a foundation. It's the first foundation of mindfulness. But when I was practicing, I didn't really know what that meant. It's like, yeah, how do I be in my body? Okay. I think for a long, a long time I faked it. I think I did walking meditation and I thought, oh, this is what embodiment is. Step, left, step. You know, but I didn't really understand what it meant to live in the body, to, to move with the body, to, to feel at home in the body. And there's also a lot of conflicting information what I've discovered about how to be in a human body and lead a spiritual life. Right? We have what the church says, we have all these different views and opinions, right? And we, we, we don't always know how to respond. There actually isn't that many teachings out there. So the questions that I want to pose tonight are how do we learn to become embodied? How do we learn to live? with that sense of embodiment, to live in the heart, to live in presence. What are the benefits? And this is a path of purification. right? So we have to learn that in some way this is a, an unveiling process that we're going through here. So how do we do this unveiling, unveiling the delusions that are hindering the truth, right? that hinder, they, they're obstacles, they block this. So I think that has been my quest in the last maybe 15 years, but the last few years in particular, it's like, how do, what does this mean to feel in my body, to live in, in this way? And I think the Buddha also had his own uh, process around this, if you think about it. You know, as he left the palace, being the prince that he was, he had a very pampered lifestyle, right? He was a prince, you know, all, all that comes with that. And then when he had his great renunciation, immediately he set about trying to become an awakened being, discover truth. And they say for five and a half years, he really sort of tortured his body. That was what you did at that time. There was all these practices, right? And laying in the sun and for hours at a time doing yoga poses, right? Or, or holding one's breath or lying on a on, on bed of nails, not bathing, not eating. There's a text where he's eating one piece of one grain of rice a day. 
at the Spirit Rock, I'm not sure who gave Spirit Rock this statue, but it's sort of hiding way off on the side of this hill. It's a giant statue of the Buddha where he was in his most intense phase of renunciation. Basically, he was starving to death. Right? So he, they said that he came very close to death, actually, right? trying to break the body in some way. That was what the teachers were teaching. And these, his friends, his little sangha, also thought that was the way. Right? We somehow break out of this body, this encasement, and then we attain freedom. Right? We somehow got to manipulate this. Or, and it became out of balance to the point where he almost died. He said that he was, I read in one text that he had tried to get up to go to the bathroom and fell face down in the mud. He had no, no energy. And then it was very clear, this is not the way. Right, but five years of doing all of that, five years sitting on the earth is a long time. Right, can you imagine that? The dedication and the willingness. But that wasn't the way. That wasn't, you know, there, there was a, a middle path that he discovered. So I think what's beautiful how I interpret that, and again, we, we all as teachers, we hear texts and we learn them from our own heart, is that I felt like when he surrendered into this is not the way, there was a beautiful, young, and when I say beautiful, I mean beautiful-hearted woman who was making an offering of a rice porridge, Sarjata. She, she was on her way as soon as the Buddha had this idea, this is not the way I should eat, I should bathe, I, should, you know, uh, this, I can't continue like this, I'm going to die, I don't even have energy. So here comes Sujata with this bowl the porridge that she had spent all morning making and then sees him and offers it. So again, what we have here is sort of the feminine coming in. Like, eat. Right? Take care of your body. Right? And there's a bit like, oh, yes, this is good. right? And he starts to eat right? and regain some strength and he starts to bathe. And of course, his friends who had been practicing all these years ridiculed him. Like, oh, God, look at you. You're eating. You're bathing. You've lost the, you know, you've lost focus. We're, we're out of here. They left him, right? So, again, this is that middle path. That, like that, the Buddha said that that way of torturing the body, that's not the way. So he had to find that, though, to go to an extreme, to, to come near death, and then to realize there's another way. It's like, oh, I include the body. Right? Oh, it's not about torturing this body. How do I be present in this body? And he remembered a time when he was in his father's garden where everything was fine. Right? And he attained a state of concentration. And it was very peaceful. Right? There was no striving. There was no struggle. It was this opening. So... For me, that showed the Buddha had to reconcile this within himself and find the middle path between this intense indulgence that he had in the palace that they describe in detail, you know, and so it was like many women and musicians and food and, they, you know, all of that. He, he, he explored that and then renounced that. But then to go to the other extreme is also not the way. And I know for me, that's kind of an extreme that I explored. Like somehow my body was bad. I should get rid of it or I should do something or this isn't good. So I had to find my own way with this. How do we discover that 
this middle place of learning how to be in our body, how to care for this body, how to learn from this body, as the Buddha is pointing to, without indulging, right? Without going to an extreme, and without this self-hatred that we, we, we bring in the West. I'm sure if I was to raise, ask people to raise their hand and say, how many people are dealing with some type of suffering with your body just by how it appears in this moment? There'd probably be many people, right? So we have a, a certain mindset. Therefore, it's difficult to, for us to live embodied. So the Buddha is saying, here, living in the body, we, we learn to become mindful, we occupy. <coughs> if we don't learn how to do this, I, f- I fear that we won't really grow on the path. And I've seen people working with them for years now at Spirit Rock and in Oakland, a lot in Oakland, that people are sort of in a frozen state, that there's this intense freeze that happens and we live just in this part of the, you know, we think everything resides here. Somebody very, uh, I think, beautifully described, I think, our dilemma in the Q&A the other morning thing. There's all these big screen TVs going on. I think somebody in the back was saying, I was like, yeah, now times that by 7 billion people, right? And then the awareness of the body was a tiny little window over here, right? So there was all this, all of this stuff going on. There was a Harvard study that uh, a friend of mine had uh, shared with me. There's a lot of research happening, and I want to share some of that tonight. The neuroscience and the the mind-body connection, and there's all this new data that sort of verifies that there's this big connection to the heart and the mind and the body. They're all in this dance together. But I found this to be uh, a little alarming, but actually I could see it in, in our world. So the study was they took a group, I think it was a study of 300 people, 300 participants, and they had them come and they set them up. Basically, it was about compassion. So they took all their vitals and they had uh, you know, them wired up and their heart rate and their blood pressure were monitoring them. And then they set about showing them some very horrific images, images of war and images of... Uh, deforestation, images of pollution, all these images, right, that, that were pretty serious, that were pretty, it would affect you. Now, they were asking them while this was happening, how do you feel? And the people were like, I feel fine. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of sad, but I'm great. Yeah, I'm okay. Yeah. But their body was in a state of total distress. Their vitals were going off heart racing, and they couldn't, they weren't able to note that. They weren't able to be in tune with that. So they went through a 12-week MBSR course, and then they did it again. And they were able to track exactly what was happening. Oh my gosh, yes, I, uh, you know, I have a pain in my throat. My stomach is hurting. Compassion is arising, right? My heart is moved. I feel vibration in my belly. My hands are becoming clam, you know, they were able to name what was happening. So this is very important. Because if we don't know, if we're numb, how are we learning? Of course we'd be able to destroy our planet if we can't feel what's happening. 
right? We can't feel what's going on. We're sort of, we're cut off in some way. So I felt like this is something that I, I see quite a lot of, actually, right? We, we can understand that. So I want to talk a little bit about the healing potential as we, we're coming into new territory here. You know, as we establish more of this connection between the mind and the body, I've seen uh, within myself and others a lot of healing of people's illnesses and all types of things through meditation. Even Deepama, the teacher you know, with Joseph and Sharon and Jack, I think she was described as crawling into the meditation center, racked in pain, right? And within you know, a few days, it's like, wow, body well. But I've seen this also happening in Oakland quite a bit. People tell me they were on very intense medication, pain management, and it's lessening. In the mindfulness-based stress reduction world, there seems to be a huge benefit to doing mindfulness practice. What are they doing exactly in MBSR class? A body scan. What is it that's so marvelous about applying awareness to the body in detail has a healing effect. I find this very interesting and powerful. It interrupts the usual flow of our thinking. We think our thinking becomes interrupted when we live in the body. We're not paying attention to the big screen TVs anymore, which is mostly what's showing on those TVs is terrible. Be different if it was exciting or fun, right? Mostly, it's a horror story, right? Again and again and again. It's brutal, you know. This it's really difficult. So, when we're able to apply awareness to the body, there seems to be this this effect, right? The body gets better. John Kabat-Zinn, in the training that I had done with him, he was like, all these studies of people was like, wow. Nobody's really paying attention to this. This is amazing. It's getting bigger and bigger as people, you know, science is proving it more and more. You know, that, that this way of being, of paying attention, there's another, um, a Dr. Herbert Benson, he's an MD and the director at um, Emeritus of Benson Henry Institute of Mind-Body Medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital. And he's the author of The Relaxation Revolution. So he was an emergency room physician and, and led all these different things. And he started recommending uh, meditation, yoga, tai chi, deep breathing, and visualizations. Right? And he, he started studying his uh, patients. And all elicit the relaxation response, the quelling, the release of stress hormone, cortisol, and adrenaline. Right? So... These create cancers, actually. These are very toxic for the body, all stress. This is very interesting. So he saw that applying these different practices, the heart slowed, the blood pressure fell, digestion eased, and the immune, immune system of his clients soared. Right? And so he finally started to document this more and more. Like, this isn't just, you know, hippie talk here, right? This is actually science, like there's something really happening. Something is going on. So we can see this in ourselves as we come. You know, 
we can kind of take refuge in that. So how do we, so what, what happens on retreat with our body? One of the beautiful things and the most interesting for me is I discovered that the body is a storehouse of information. Within this body, and I think that that's what the Buddha was talking about, in this fathom-long body is all of the dharma. I would think, what does that mean? All I would feel would be back pain, you know. I'm like, how is, how is paying attention is helping me? You know, has anyone had that thought? <laughs> how is sitting here, how is this liberating, you know? It's very mysterious. Right? Being in the present moment. So the body is this tremendous storehouse of information. Not only is all of our trauma stored there, but all of the wisdom of the ages is also stored there. Right? In the DNA, in our cells, and there's some way in which when we learn to sit and rest our attention in the body, we can access this knowledge. Right? This knowledge becomes... Uh, available to us. You know, when we don't, we turn all the TVs down and, we, and the, the mindfulness of the body goes up, we're, we're available to learn. And I always, for those who know me, who are friends here, one of my favorite sayings is, this is school. Life is school. Are we paying attention? You know, in a school class, the ones in the front row you know, that's, you know, they're ready, they got their pens out. Usually the back row is a little more, not here, but, you know, in general. <laughs> you know, everyone's asleep, you know, right? It's like, they're not, they're going to have to repeat the class, right? Hence, we will repeat again and again and again and again. Nature of samsara is to repeat till we pass, till we, till we learn. Ah, okay, this is how it is, which is okay. We can repeat forever. We have repeated forever. <laughs> So there's another sutta I want to talk about really quick because um, I hadn't found this one. I found this one, but I, I had read it a really long time ago. So it's the Rohitasa Sutta. So again, uh, as Dhamma Ruan was talking about the other night, that this is set and the Buddha was alive in Jetta Grove, and yet again another deva comes late at night. Right. So it says, on this occasion, the Blessed One was staying near Savati, Jetta's Grove, uh, Rohitasa, who's the son of a deva, started to come and he appeared, right? He wanted to, you know, the Buddha would give teaching to devas in the, in the wee hours of the night. So he bowed, it said that his body, uh, you know, it radiated through the whole, all of Jetta Grove, you know. So he is this celestial being. So he um, posed this question to the Buddha, which I think is a very interesting question. I didn't really get this sutta so much when I first read it a long time ago, but he says, uh, so as he's standing there, he says, I have a question. He bowed. He said, is it possible by traveling to know or see or reach a far end of the cosmos where one does not take birth, age, die, pass away, or reappear? So, Basically, he's saying, is there a way through traveling can I get to freedom, right? Is there, where is there? And we can, I could see myself in that I've traveled so much, looking, you know, looking, is it here, is it here, can I find, you know? So he, he kind of had that. And so the Buddha 
basically said, um, I tell you, friend, that it is not possible by traveling to know or see or reach a far end of the cosmos where one does not take birth, age, die, pass away, or reappear. And so he says, okay, I understand I can't get there by traveling. And then he describes a previous, I think it was a previous life, where he was also a celestial being and he could travel. He had developed a magical power where he traveled. And he said, for 100 years, with, I tried to go without stopping. I traveled every inch of the cosmos, looking for an end, looking for freedom. And he died in that pursuit. So that was a powerful question, right? He really had this, like, where is freedom to be found? So he listened to him share that story. And then um, he said, I tell you, friend, that it's not possible by traveling to know or see or reach the far end of the cosmos. And then he says, yet it is just within this fathom-long body with its perception and intellect, that I declare that there is the cosmos, the origination of the cosmos, the secession of the cosmos, and the path of practice leading to the cessation of the cosmos. And he talks about it being mindfulness in the body. In this fathom-long body, there is the cosmos. That's beautiful. Recently, somebody sent me a picture of a... Um, a picture, and they said on the tagline, they said, this, they said, this reminds me of you, or they said, I found an old picture of you. That's what it was. And it was this beautiful star. <laughs> like, here you are a trillion years ago, right? <laughs> like, yeah, this is, we are of the earth, of course, we are. That's very true. On an elemental level, 99% of the mass of the human body is made up of six elements. Oxygen, carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, calcium, and phosphorus. 70% of this is water. Right? Isn't it? We don't think about this on a daily basis. It seems so solid. There's so much meanness in it, right? We're very attached. Like, here I am. We look at the body. Right? Right? Yeah, that's me. Right? We have so much identification. In some way, I wanted to offer this talk as a way of non-clinging but yet with a sense of honor and respect of this form that we inhabit. I find it to be amazing, wondrous in its ability, right? Every day, an adult body produces 300 billion new cells. So right now, we're, just in a, we're sitting here. It looks very still. There's all kinds of things going on, right? The human body has 60,000 miles of blood vessels. I really find the liver to be the most fascinating because it works so hard. It's 500 different functions. Right? So this magical form, as it appears, like, wow, and it's all doing itself. You know, recently I had this cut on my hand, and then it's completely gone. The body on its own heals itself. Right? There's some intelligence to this process. There's an intelligence They say that when we hug someone, oxytocin is released into our bodies by our pituitary glands, right? So this lowers our blood pressure. And I have a friend who's a pediatric nurse, and she says 
She'll tell me all the time, she says, babies that are not held regularly spring fail to thrive. Their bodies don't develop. Even if they have a healthy, their body stays small, right? Trauma creates that, right? A lack of compassion has a serious effect on the body. So here we sit on retreat with our body and all kinds of pains happen. We, we explore. I always think of the retreat experience as very shamanic, right? We sit here, all kinds of energies come as we release energy, just like the mind is doing a dump. The body also is releasing, right? Whole cycle, sometimes pains come and with them there's tremendous emotion and sorrow, right? And we, it's like we're releasing tension. Sometimes I feel like ancient knots are being healed, right? Sometimes this is very painful. Sometimes it's very beautiful. As we take in, as we sit, there's beautiful energies, right? We, we sit and the mind gets quiet and we can open to a, a new state, you know, of concentration. It's just not all suffering. Sometimes it's very blissful, right? So we, a lot of times, though, what we have to unpack is our clinging and our traumas. As you sit here, The mind has an intelligence, it's organic. The mind and the body are clearing. This is the path of purification. Purification sometimes is difficult, right? So I would sit here many times and work through waves of fear, right? Memories. Has anyone noticed having a life review here? Isn't that interesting? It starts when we're two years old, three, you know, and then we're in kindergarten and with some humiliation, and we process that. And it comes with body memories and thoughts. All this energy is moving. The great storehouse is unpacking itself. This is incredible. Just by being aware, with compassion, you can be a great aid in helping your body. There's wisdom in that. right? Often my body knows now what's happening before I do. I want to give you an example because I was... I'm starting just this inhabiting my body after I did a whole bunch of healing work. I, I started to come into it in a different way. It was like all, and I had a lot of trauma growing up. Oh my goodness. I mean, it was just so much, right? That leaves serious uh, energetic, fo- a lot of unpacking is necessary, a lot of healing, a lot of care. Um, so I started, I started to pay attention to my body in a different way, right? I was living within my heart, in my belly, right, in my, my, my power. There's some kind of power that comes when you live in that place, right? And so I noticed in my neighborhood, I live in Oakland, I'd been living in a house for three years, which I loved, but the neighborhood wasn't so good. <laughs> you know, there was a lot going on a few blocks away, right? And I would kind of ignore it, like send meta, you know, Meta, that's it. I'll put a metal force around, you know. It'll be fine. You know, it's okay. Yeah, I love East Oakland. But it has uh, suffering there. It has suffering there. Uh, so I feel very attached to presence there. Like, no. But my body suddenly started to shake whenever I was at home. My mind felt fine, and I would notice my body shaking. And I think body, what's happening? <laughs> I had compassion for that. Like, what's, what's going on? What do you need me to know? And it started to shake more and more. And pretty soon it was shaking all in the night. 
And I would leave and I would travel, go to retreat centers, go to other places, body winds shake. Drive home, body starting to shake again. And I started to feel like, oh, this is not good, right? What? And I started to feel, you need to move. You need to go. And I was very attached to where I was living. No, 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 no. I was like, you need to move. So I followed it. On a whim, I said, I'm going to go. So I moved out within three weeks after getting that message. It was really epic to move so quickly. It, wasn't, it didn't make sense. I kept telling people, this doesn't make sense. My body knows to leave. And sure enough, a couple of days after, the owner of the house called me and he said, wow, we had a terrible break-in. In the middle of the night, some people came in and they just messed up everything. I thought, oh, I could have been there. So there was something intuitive, like if we listen to our body, the body knows how to heal. It knows how to let go. So if we learn to be in tune with it, to listen to it with some kind of respect, I think that's the key word, is a respect. I think I didn't have much respect for my body. Right? It didn't look the way I wanted. It wasn't perfect. It was, you know, we, we, we judge it by this kind of the, the media standard. Like That's the only lens we have for this form. We don't hear about this stuff in school. right? We don't learn about mindfulness in an embodied way. We don't hold it as kind of sacred in, in, that, in that light that we can learn. So there's a relationship that you have to find again here. One of really valuing, you know, not just dragging our body around. That's mostly how I was. Like, don't get sick. Don't complain. Don't get all achy on me. Come on, you know. Just <laughs> suck it up. Suck it up. We'll work 20 hours straight. Don't give me any, you know. It's, it's like that's how we are. It's kind of brutal, actually. Right? And then you get sick and we get it. I feel bad. Let me think, I need to rest. I'll be compassionate. But only usually in a crisis. A crisis becomes the stopping point. A crisis becomes where we say, I'll listen now. Okay, compassion. So we don't have to get to that point. We can, we can learn to live with this awareness that's dropped deep down like a stone. Not in the endless cycle of thinking. We get nowhere really with that. We just suffer. So being here on retreat is a way that we can say, okay, how do I come in? Okay, one of the things, if you want to be embodied, I'm just going to tell you like it is right now, you have to be willing to feel. There's no way around it. You can't be numb and be embodied. You can't encase yourself and be embodied. You have to be willing to feel. You have to be willing to feel all the joys, the 10,000 joys, and then you have to also feel the 10,000 sorrows. You have to be willing to be present with that. So as we sit, that's a lot of what we experience moment after moment is this unpacking it's this beauty. It's this, it's this wisdom. And if we can trust the process, I think what happens a lot of time to us is we think everything was great, but this is not okay. What's happening now is just way not, you know. We doubt, right? We have some pain. We have an emotion. And we think this is interfering with the retreat, right? This can't be a part of dharma. Everything else was great, but not this, <laughs> Right? Not this issue. Nobody can know about that. <laughs> but see, 
the body is a re- it reveals the truth of things, right? Everything in the storehouse has to be opened up, all the closets. Right? That's what we're doing here, right? All the secrets that we hide, the body hold- is a holder of those secrets, right? It's like, no, let's free ourselves, let's unburden ourselves, let's, clear- let's make peace with ourselves, let's not war with ourselves anymore. So I learned a lot about this when I was, uh, I think I had a big, uh, I guess you could say, insight. Last year, I ended a five-month retreat, and three of the months of my retreat, I was alone in a cabin. And uh, I was in Crestone, Colorado, in the mountains. And I hadn't planned on doing a cabin retreat. It just sort of evolved. I was staying, doing practice at a tiny little Tibetan center. And then I... um, I felt like I was too noisy, and suddenly I wanted privacy. So a nun said, "Ah, oh, if you want privacy, there's a yogi cabin way up on this mountain. Why don't you do practice there?" And I thought, "Oh, this is great, because you know you think only of the good things, right? I'll be alone in nature, connecting to the earth. You know, I had all these ideas of mystical encounters, you know." experience, you know, you think of good things, right? That's how we are with retreat. We usually only remember the last day of the retreat. (laughs) Where we're running out of the hall, like, yes! (laughs) And then we forget, like, the huge amount of cycles of pure... That's kind of good in a way, right? And it keeps us on on the hook, right? So I was like, oh, this will be so great. I read this book about this woman in a cave for 12 years. I was like, she was in a cave 12 years. She's fine. This is just three months. I can do it. I'm on my own. It's now or never. I'll be my own teacher. Turn off my cell phone. Up to the mountain we go. Very, very uh, challenging experience I had in there. (laughs) And I remember when (laughs) the caretaker, he was really sweet, kind of mystical in his own way. He brought water every 10 days. So that was really the only interaction was this kind of zany caretaker type, you know, it was like my interview was like, oh good, he's coming with the water, right, I run out, hello, uh, you know, I could walk down to the, it was owned by a Dzogchen, a Bhutanese Dzogchen community, they had maybe a thousand acres, so there was a tiny temple and there was one Bhutanese monk who was occasionally at the temple if there was a class or something, but it's a very long walk, maybe 30 minutes down this long path and you know, and um, so it wasn't very convenient, you know, so I thought, okay, I'll stay in the cabin. But as he, the caretaker was dropping me off, I remember it was the funniest emotion. I, he was like, okay, you're okay. I'm going to come back in 10 days. And I had a food delivery that would come. A, a couple who owned a little shop would bring food halfway up the mountain, and I would walk down and get the, you know, they couldn't drive the car anymore. It was just, there was no real road. And so we had it all arranged. And then um, as the caretaker was driving down the hill after you know, bringing in my little Zabutan and altar, it was a tiny little cabin, so cute. I had this wave of fear. Everything was great. And then as he was driving away, I was like, no. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, what have I done? I can't leave now. I have to stay here. This is all paid for. I've rented my house. Oh my, and I had a panic. I can't be present this much. And then, because <laughs> I had, there was nothing. No computer, no nothing. It was just me and nature. Right? And then 
a three-month process started of the most intense unraveling I'd ever seen. Wow, it was beautiful to have compassion. And that's a huge part of also our practice. Because I didn't think I was going to, we don't know what we're going to purify. Right? We come to retreats with very interesting agendas. Okay, I work on my mom this day, and then maybe my relationship issues that week. Then I'll get healthy on the third week, and then I'll be great. Yeah, that's what's going to happen. Maybe, and then we have somewhere I'll get really beautiful mystical states week four, right? Be all great. Usually it's going like this, the image. (laughs) Often we don't don't imagine going into the underworld could be good, right? But that's how retreat is. You have to go into the underworld. You have to be willing to go to where the roots of things lie. Under the water, under cover, under in the depths. I mean, that's what we're doing. Looking, examining the roots of suffering. Right? And you have to be willing to get dirty. Go where it's not comfortable. Go without sight. Go blind. Let your body travel with you, right? It knows what's going on. Even if we don't, the body knows. It's like, trust me, I know how to, I know how to heal this. I know how to unwind this. Just be aware. Let me do it. Be present. Let us do it. Let life do it. It's really empty. It's a process that's happening. Right? It doesn't belong to anyone. So it's a, something that we, we have faith in. So in my cabin, I developed a tremendous, unshakable faith because at one point I thought, well, spring, the worst thing that could happen to you in here is a feeling. That's it, a feeling. I thought, I can deal with this. I can be with feelings. I'm ready. And wow, did I ever have some feelings, right? I mean, who knows where that stuff came from? You know, as I just sat with compassion, it was like unwinding sorrow so deep that it, would, it felt like it would break you in half, right? It was just arising, moving, and fear that was so wound up, right? Fear of annihilation, right? Fear of everything, just fear magnified on top of fear, on top of terror. Some of you might be sitting with some of these feelings. But if we can just be with compassion, trust the body, trust the dharma, we can we will be okay. It's a process there. So compassion in the body is very important that when you're feeling overwhelmed that you, you, you come back to having some metta. Right? The body loves compassion. That's why babies love when they're held. Right? That's like, yeah, they can feel the compassion. There's a, a, a story that was touching. It's a little off the, slightly off the topic. Well, um, I'm very interested in soldiers who are coming home with post-traumatic stress. That's just something that touches me, just soldiers war coming home, trying to figure out their life. And um, somebody forwarded me a study from San Diego University. And they're having great success with post-traumatic stress. <clears throat> Some of you may have seen this. And, um, and these were soldiers that they put into the study who were ba- basically going to probably kill themselves. And they kind of resigned, like, there's so much stress here that we don't know how to even deal with it. Now there's a lot of people teaching mindfulness and trying to work with this population that's probably quite large actually, right? They just have so much trauma. And so um, there, uh, there were these dogs 
they started to train these dogs. So the soldiers, the worst part about post-traumatic stress is what they called um, the hours and hours of night terrors. That basically kept them up so they couldn't sleep. If you, don't, if you go long periods with no sleep and you're already depressed, it, it just it's not good, right? It spirals into psychotic behavior really quickly, confusion. So sleeping was their biggest challenge. They would go long times without sleeping. So the dogs, they train these dogs that to sit up all night, so they sit by the soldiers all night while they're in their bed, and then when they start going into a terror, a night terror, the body starts reacting, because the body is reacting, right? Like it's right there, it's in, you know, it's held. The dog starts, puts paw like this and starts a tapping motion on the heart. I know, it was so sweet. I was like, right? And the soldier immediately felt the tapping and would come back into his body and go, I could orient, see his dog, see his house. The dog would keep tapping and then lick him, right? So there'd be this tap on the heart, right over the heart, and they trained it to just go steady beats like this till he woke up. <laughs> These dogs were amazing. There's this little video of this like, golden retriever with his paw. <laughs> like, what a bodhisattva dog. And the soldiers are reporting the ability to go back to sleep. Right, this changes everything. They feel the compassion of another being present in them. Touching the touch becomes critical. Somehow, the touching of the body was powerful. So now they're training like thousands of these dogs. Right, they're like, this is great, and they're giving them to all the soldiers and their help. And their soldiers are reporting that this is very helpful. In some way, that's how the body is. It responds to love. It responds to our care. It responds to our violence. Right? It responds when we have a lot of self-hatred. It responds. Right? It shuts down. It gets sick. It gets frozen. It becomes unhappy. It's alive. Right? This was something that I had the great realization in the cabin. I went, oh, you're alive. Oh. It was like this huge realization. Like, oh, we're working together here. Oh, okay, I could listen and sit, and I'm like, okay, body, here we are. Okay. And I think that's changed my ability to be here in the present moment. Right? The relationship changed. There was this respect. There was this honor of what I could learn. Right? This is about learning. Right? I can learn the the Buddha is pointing this, in this fathom-long body is the cosmos, right? What does that mean? How do we learn that? What can we, how do we grow into that? We practice it. We practice moving from the head to the heart. That's the problem when we're numb, is we lost touch with the heart. This, I feel, is very grave, right? Like, uh-oh, when we're frozen, the heart is frozen. Nothing comes in, nothing comes out, right? We're, which is kind of, and that is dangerous for our world. That's how we're able to overlook the suffering of the planet. We, we don't feel it. It's like the study at Harvard. I don't see it. I don't feel it. Right? But the body's like, yes, I feel it. Right? The body's going, I'm alive. I'm connected. I am the minerals. <laughs> right? So, so we, can, we can embody that. And there are some practices that we use for different reasons, and I just want to mention a little bit about that, because we do the 32 parts of the body meditation as a way of, of cutting through our attachment 
you know, of the body. And sometimes um, we do even, we, we do practices that are, are feel more morbid. But these are, this is like a certain medicine for certain types of conditions. And sometimes some of us have a very strong leaning towards greed or lust or this intense movement, right? It's the word also tanha, it's craving, right? It's a form of suffering. So we use certain types of practices to cut through our fixation, right? Because really what we're attracted to is someone else's, right, oxygen, carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, calcium. If we really saw it like that, right, there's a way of like, oh, right? There's a delusion in that. You know, we like someone's hair, but if it's in our food, it's disgusting, right? <laughs> right? There's a delusion about how the mind sees the form, right? It's like, oh, I love it, right? But if we were to take it into its barest parts, it wouldn't, we'd be freaked out, right? Like, no, no, I don't want that, you know, no, that I'd take it back or get rid of it. So it's important that we learn to apply remedies as skillful means. These are all remedies, metta, compassion, right? Big mind. In and out, breathing, walking, all these things are remedies. They're like skillful means that we pull out. And sometimes we pull that one out. Oh, okay, there's a fixation that is producing pain. So we pull that one out and we use that, right, to cut through, to see the truth of the, the form, right, to see form for what it is, right, the, the beautiful and the not so beautiful. But it still doesn't have to ever lose its wonder. I think when we learn how Thich Nhat Hanh, I'm reminded of him right now because he's in Oakland and a bunch of people, he's doing a big teaching there and, and um, uh, my friends were organizing it. But he always used to say spring, you know, or teach, not to me exactly, but I would always feel that it was to me, he would say. <laughs> Personally. <laughs> He would say, um, the earth will be safe when we feel safe in ourselves, when we feel safe in our body, when we feel safe in at home in our body. And um, Philip Shepard, he said uh, in this book, beautiful book about the body, he said, if you are divided from your body, you are also divided from the body of the world, which then appears to be other than you or separate from you rather than a living continuum to which you belong. Right? So, I think that's important. I believe what Thich Nhat Hanh says, that the earth will be safe when we come into our body and feel safe in ourselves. It will be a natural extension. It's like, oh, we don't even have to think about a policy or a program. It's an extension of compassion. So practice the best you can bringing in compassion when you need it. If your body is suffering, right, and you don't know what's happening, to bring in this kind of warmth, you know, this energy of the mother. Bring in sujata. You know, you can call on her. She's like, brings the nourishment. Yes, what do you need? Right? I'm starving. Okay, let's get something. And starving isn't always starving for food. It's the starving of the heart. It's the starving of separation. It's the starving of the ego and its manic insanity, right? Certain deprivation from that. 
So I just want to end this talk with just uh, reading a little bit about Hakuin. He was, uh, I was reading his biography, and I wanted to read you a little bit of his, his uh, Enlightenment Zazen song. It's just a little piece of it. So Hakuin, uh, he was one of the most influential Zen masters in the Japanese Zen Buddhism. Uh, he, was, uh, he died, actually, in 1768. But we read a lot of Hakuin stories, a lot of uh, beautiful uh, poems and stories are passed down. And Hakuin was reported to have several enlightenment experiences in his life, um, all of which when he had them, he would start hysterically laughing. So people thought he was a madman, right? <laughs> including one very big one where I guess he laughed for a very long time. <laughs> if you, if you can't laugh, it just ain't funny. I don't know who said that. Maybe like wavy gravy or something. But it's good to have a sense of humor here, though, really. Don't take it too serious. It gets too painful if you do, right? It's just empty phenomena at the end. <laughs> don't, don't get too worried. Um, so Hakuin was reported to have reached full enlightenment when he was 41. And then he taught for 40 years, and he kind of resurrected the, the Rinzai Zen school. So he's quite fierce, you know, as only a Zen master could be, right? But uh, I, was, I just want to end, because I was, I was, his song of enlightenment is also on YouTube with music now, and it's a whole, I think in the age of like, even Milarepa would sing his songs, and Shabkar, great Tibetan yogi. Sometimes all they could do was just sing, right? You ask for a teaching, and they would sing you a song. Kind of sweet, right? You can't describe awakening. So this is the last paragraph of his song. He says, How bright and transparent the moonlight of wisdom. What is there outside us? What is there we lack? Nirvana is openly shown to our eyes. This earth where we stand is the pure lotus land. And this very body, the body of Buddha. So I just sit for a moment or two, feeling your body with compassion. Thank you for your attention. Walking and then back for chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit 
dharmaseed.org slash donate.